And I'd like to introduce to you our first speaker, um, Father Joseph Kelly. Um, here's a quote from him. He says, I gave much credit to one woman who influenced me and encouraged me during my discernment period, and she continues to influence me and strengthen me as I enter the priesthood. That woman is the Blessed Virgin Mary. She has guided me and protected me through these years of discernment and preparation. I know that she will continue to do so in the years to come. And Father, I think that's so powerful. Bishop Finn used to say, if you want, if the priests are holy, the parishioners will be holy. If you want your parishioners to be holy, the priests need to be holy. And there's no better way to becoming holy than to follow the Blessed Mother. And the last quote, and then I'll introduce Father Kelly. He said, there's nothing, nothing will give me greater joy than to celebrate the highest form of worship, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, as a priest of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce to you Father Joseph Kelly. Well, let us commend this time together to the Blessed Virgin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Mary, our Mother, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I certainly want to, want to, as Dominic did at the beginning, extend a special welcome to all of you and to thank you for being here this evening as we begin this Marian Conference, a conference in which we indeed focus upon the role of the Blessed Virgin in our lives and her assistance to us and her motherly care that she shows to us in drawing us to a deeper union with her son because that is all that she desires as our mother. And so uh, we, we're certainly grateful for all of you being here this evening as we begin this Marian Conference. Uh, as mentioned, my name is Father Kelly. I'm the, currently the Associate Pastor of Our Lady of the Lake in Branson, Missouri, and Our Lady of the Ozarks in Forsyth, and uh, about every Sunday at St. Joseph the Worker in Ozark, which is a, a parish that's about 30 minutes north of where I'm located, I celebrate the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite. I've been ordained a priest for just over four years by the grace and the mercy of God. Uh, I was ordained on June the 12th of 2015 by Bishop Johnston, who was our bishop at the time, and he is now, of course, the bishop of Kansas City, St. Joseph. So in my four short years of priesthood, uh, I've learned so much, and I'm just so grateful to the good God for all that he has done for me in my priesthood and the great love that he has shown to me. And certainly, uh, I would not be a priest today if it wasn't for the Blessed Mother, if it wasn't for her role in my life. As uh, I, many people ask me, well, how old were you when you wanted to become a priest? And I really don't remember exactly how old I was. My dad has to tell me how old I was. When I first looked up to him, and I, I simply told him, Dad, I want to be a father. I was about five years old whenever that happened. My dad has been a daily mass goer for 40 years now. And whenever I was four or five years old, I wanted to start going with him. So he would drag me along with him uh, to, our, to our home parish of the Cathedral of St. Agnes in Springfield. And uh, during, uh, while we were walking to the chapel one day, the priest was going in to get ready for Mass, and he was dressed in his clerics. And 
as he walked in the doors, I just simply stopped, looked up at my dad, and I said, Dad, I want to be a father. And that's kind of where it all began. I have no recollection of that moment. My dad just tells me. Maybe this was just my dad's sinister plan to get me to become a priest. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't question it. I just, I just decided to, uh, to take him at his word for it. But nevertheless, here I am. Uh, by, the, by the grace and the mercy of God as a priest. Uh, many people ask me, um, if they see me dressed in my cassock, they say, well, Father, what order are you? And, of course, I usually tell them, well, I'm a diocesan priest, you know, and we're permitted to, to wear this and so forth. And nowadays, I've started telling people, well, I'm the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> I'm glad many of you got that joke. That's great. Okay, that's good. Excellent. We're good. Well, without further ado, let's talk about the greatest woman that has ever lived, the Blessed Virgin Mary. My talk this evening is entitled, Mother of the Incarnate Word. And with a title like that, for goodness sakes, where do you go with that? There's so many directions in which we could go with a title like that. Mother of the Incarnate Word. A title that's only five words and yet contains so much, so much rich treasure, so much depth to it that we could study it, think about it, contemplate that very title for hours on end. What I would like to do is to first focus upon the end of that title, which is the highlight of the title of this, of this title of our Blessed Mother, that of the incarnate word. Because we hear this term, certainly in, in the Catholic faith, so very often we hear of any many of our parishes that are named after the Incarnate Word. I believe there's a university that's named after the Incarnate Word. So we hear this term so often, but do we often think about really what it means, the Incarnate Word? So I want to talk first about that phrase because it really highlights and, and, and exemplifies this title of Our Lady that she is the mother of the Incarnate Word. So let's take a look at, the, at, at this phrase, the incarnate word. Let's begin with the last, word. The word, word. Well, in this context, it comes from the Greek word meaning the logos, which is where we get the word logic, that of the mind. And we see this word logos very frequently throughout Greek literature. We see it used in many different ways by many different philosophers. But in Judaism, the word logos referred to the creative act, the active principle, that which is spoken. And in the sense that it was used in the Old Testament, it was, of course, in reference to Almighty God and to the word that is spoken. For what does Genesis tell us about the first instance of creation? What did God do? He didn't make a motion of his hand. He spoke. He said, Fiat lux, let there be light. He spoke, and so it was. And so we can look at that instance of Scripture in the book of Genesis and find the first identity, identification of the Son of God. For God the Father spoke the word and it came into being. The creative act, the creative principle, the Judaic understanding of 
the word logos. Now, as we move into the New Testament, we see the word logos, that Greek word used uh, most frequently, most profoundly, by the evangelist St. John. And we really see it first expounded upon in John's prologue, what is the, the, the first chapter of St. John's Gospel. And when I go through this first chapter of John's Gospel as we continue to reflect upon, to really hash out what is the meaning of the word, the logos. But as this, as the, as the, in Judaic literature, in the scriptures, it is that creative word that is, has existed for all eternity. And St. John speaks about that in his prologue. So this is, these are the words of St. John at the very beginning of his gospel, the very first words that he speaks in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's interesting language that he uses. The Word was with God, at verbum eratapu deum. The Word was with God, identifying that there are two separate principles at work here. That there is God, and that there is the Logos, the Word. But then what does John say? And the Word was God. So John identifies, he, he, he speaks specifically to the nature of the Logos, of what the Word is and identifies it as a separate principle, that which we call a person, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is a separate person distinct from the first person of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, and yet is God, he says, et Deus erat verbum, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. And certainly we have to understand this as the church fathers have helped us to understand this properly. And many other church scholars that we read this, in the, in the beginning was the Word. It's not that the Word had a beginning. But the Word was present at our beginning. The beginning of creation itself. For the Word has always existed because the Word is God, the Logos. And we'll return to this passage in just a couple of moments. So let us move on to the word incarnate. Now, this comes from two Latin words, incaro, which means to be made flesh, to become flesh. As we, as we hear in the creed that we pray every Sunday, the Nicene Creed, what are those sacred words that we pray at the heart of it? And the Word was made flesh. And the Word was made flesh. The Word became flesh, took on our own nature, becoming like us in all things except for sin. The Word was made flesh flesh, the Logos, which has existed from all eternity, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became flesh, 
became one of us. So in the phrase, the, the, the term incarnate word references the incarnation, the enfleshing, if you will, of the Logos, of the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is mind-boggling because it shows that God truly entered into time, time which he himself had created. It's truly mind-boggling. And scholars and saints and church fathers and doctors of the church have racked their brains over the centuries in order to have some sort of understanding of this. So when you place it in reference to a woman being the mother of the incarnate word, and if we understand that this is the word that has existed from all eternity, how could a woman be the word's mother? Only because he took on flesh. Only because he became incarnate. He became like us in all things except for sin. That is how she can be the mother of the incarnate word. And this is what St. John hits home at the very end of his prologue. It says these beautiful words, beginning with verse 11 of the first chapter. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God, to them that believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in verse 14, John says this, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And then John goes on to say, as if to put his stamp of approval, and we saw his glory. The glory, as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says very emphatically at the end of this very beautiful prologue that he gives, that the Word, the Logos, that which has existed from all eternity, the, in the mind of the Jews, the creative act that has always existed, he became one of us. And what does John say? We saw him. We saw him. We witnessed his glory. We witnessed the things that he was doing. He became incarnate. He became one of us. He became like us and we saw his glory. And he became one of us so that, as John says, we might become sons of God. We might become like him. He didn't just become a man just to show off and say, look what I can do. But he became a man in order that we might become God, as the church fathers talk about. He became one of us. God became man so that man might become God. The incarnate word. So let's talk about now the incarnation of that word. In the first chapter of Luke's gospel, we hear of the beautiful and very powerful passage of what is known as the Annunciation of the Lord. As the angel Gabriel condescends 
to this young virgin of Nazareth to announce to her that she is going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And so I would like to go through this very rich passage in brief because I'm going to talk about it a little bit later here. But I want to go through this passage to show indeed the profundity of the incarnation of the word coming to us through this virgin of Nazareth. So in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, we hear these words. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now this is very interesting. That her name was Mary. Because as St. Louis de Montfort, the great Marian apostle, points out, God created the sea and called it Mare. But he created the sea of graces and called her Maria, Mary. Luke goes on. And the angel coming in said unto her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Now this is a very important phrase that Gabriel says because it gives, it gives the, uh, the background, if you will, the foundation for why God is going to use her to be the mother of the incarnate word. He who has existed from all eternity, completely separate from us, completely separate from sin. Gabriel says, hail, full of grace. In the Greek, kaire, kekotomene. So really, I say that ten times. A Greek word meaning, hail, you who, ha who are full of grace and have been for some time. Whenever Gabriel uses this word, kekotomene, it's as if he is saying to Mary, you are full of grace. Grazia plena. That's your name. Your name is to be full of grace. Because you have been graced by God from the beginning. So it's as if Gabriel is speaking to her very being as to who she is. That she is the one who is full of grace. So that Greek word that Gabriel uses is very important because it speaks to who Mary is, that she indeed is the Immaculate Conception, as the church defined dogmatically in 1854. It is who she is. And so God, is pre God prepared Mary to be the mother of her incarnate son, to, be, to, to create her without sin. And let's think about this. And this is a Fulton Sheenism. But if God, if, rather, if we could create our own mothers, we would make her the most perfect woman in the world, would we not? We would do that. That makes sense. We would want that. Doesn't every little child think the world of their mother? At least they should. But, but they think in that, in that sense, they, th they think of that, of, of, about their mother. 
because of who she is, of her, her very being, that of being a mother, that of, that of having all the characteristics of that which is a mother, to give life, to nourish, to protect, to nurture. So if we could create our own mothers, we would make her the most perfect woman in the world, right? Well, God could. He could create his own mother. And what did he do? He made her perfect. And why not? And why not? It's not a question of, as, as many of our uh, Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, you know, bring up, is that, wait, well, why do you believe that Mary is sinless, the, you know, the Immaculate Conception? That's just a bunch of, bunch of nonsense, you know? We've all sinned. We all needed a Redeemer. Yeah, Mary did too. She just got redeemed at her conception. <laughs> the very moment of her existence, having no sin whatsoever. So, I often like to think of the question in response to that, to the objections to the Immaculate Conception. So you objected it because God wouldn't do it? Or God couldn't do it? In reference to Mary's the Immaculate Conception. Because it's not necessarily an argument of necessity, that God had to make her this way. It's an argument of fittingness. In other words, it makes sense that God would do this. That he would create his own mother, the mother of the second person of the Holy Trinity, when he came to us as the incarnate word in the flesh, that she would be preserved from all stain of sin. Not only because it put even further distance between the incarnate word and sin itself and sinful humanity, but also because she was going to be used in the work of redemption. So God wanted to make her all pure because she was going to be used for this great work, for the work of salvation. God had no use of her because he's all-powerful. But he wanted to use her. He desired to come into the world through a mother. Through a mother. And so, one of the greatest titles, the greatest title, that any of us human beings could ever hold, that of being the mother of the incarnate word, the eternal word, the word made flesh. In the year 431 at the Council of Ephesus, the church used a very beautiful Greek term in order to define who Mary was. Because for those of you who are familiar with this controversy, there was a bishop named Nestorius who claimed that, no, Mary was just the mother of the flesh of Jesus, but not the mother of God per se. She was just the mother of his body that he took on, but not the mother of God per se. And so this caused a controversy because it was, as it was eventually defined, it was a Christological heresy. Whenever you have Christological heresy, there's always a connection to the Blessed Mother. There's always a connection to Mary. So when you define a piece of Christological theology, you are, in a sense, in turn, going to define a piece of Mariology as well, because the two are inseparable. And so the church used this beautiful Greek term, theotokos, which literally means God-bearer. A term that communicated 
in the truest sense of the word, when the word became incarnate, she was the mother of God. She is the mother of God. God, when he took on flesh, also took on a mother. And so all the way back in the year 431, the church has already defined this. The church has already said this. This is one of the marrying dogmas of the church. She is the mother of God. The mother of the incarnate word. Truly, in the truest sense of the word. She is truly the mother of God. Now as we talk about this relationship of the Blessed Virgin to the incarnate word, and being the mother of the second person of the Holy Trinity as he, as he became flesh, we recognize indeed that every aspect about the flesh of Christ he got from his mother. He took on flesh from her. I can't remember which saint it is. I think, it's, I think it was St. Bernard, who was, a, who was a, a great Marian devotee and a Mariologist. He said that at the moment of the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to propose to her that she become the mother of the incarnate word. He says, it was the only time in history that God became dependent upon a human person. God placed his dependency upon a human, first, upon a human person, obviously because he permitted it. God placed his dependency upon this lowly virgin of Nazareth in order that he might take on her flesh and become flesh himself. It's as if God was saying to Mary, will you give me a body? Will you give me flesh? So that I can take upon all of the sins of the world and redeem mankind. Will you give me that flesh to become like man in all things except for sin so that I can save them from sin, so that I can give them the opportunity for salvation, so that they might become God? Will you give me that flesh? And of course, we know what the answer was, that Our Lady in her great vast humility responded and said, let it be done. Let it be done to me according to your word, according to your logos, that has existed from all eternity. Let it be done. So there was, to shift gears a little bit, there is a scientific discovery that has been made over the last couple of decades or so that I think can really shed a more marvelous light on this title of the Blessed Virgin, on being the mother of the incarnate word, and what that truly means, even in the most human sense of it. So there's a scientific study that's, that's uh, again, recently um, been, uh, uh, been expounded upon in the last 20 years or so, in the last couple of decades, and the, the title of this recent scientific discovery is called Fetal Maternal Microchimerism. And I'll say that again. Fetal Maternal Microchimerism. Have any of you heard that phrase before? 
Okay, a couple of you. Okay, very good. All right, so you know where I'm going with this, okay? So what scientists have discovered and, and, and how they've come to this term of fetal maternal microchimerism is that they have studied and done autopsies on the bodies of women, of deceased women, and they have done some other studies on living women, I believe. And as, as they go through these studies, they have found that there are cells on the brains of many women, many of these corpses that they've studied, of women who died in their 70s, that contained the DNA of their children. Cells on the brains of these women that contained the DNA of their children. And it was also discovered that when the heart of a woman is injured in some way, be a heart attack or some other way, those fetal cells that contain the DNA of their children flock to the site of the injury in the heart of their mother. They flock to the site. And they modify themselves to become specialized heart cells. And it's been discovered that some of those cells were beating, pulsating, whenever they came to their mother's heart and helped to heal that injured heart. So scientists have, have essentially concluded that every child that a woman conceives remains with her for the rest of her life. I'm one of five, uh, I'm one of five children, actually one of six. My mother miscarried uh, one child before me. And so my mother has the DNA of her six children within her, running around in her brain. She's so gentle and kind and loving, I don't know how that's possible with the DNA of us running through her. <laughs> the grace of God, another miracle, I guess, I don't know. So let's apply this to the Blessed Virgin, who was the child that she conceived. The incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And so within her veins, and still to this day, because she assumed into heaven, she's body and soul, in heaven. So to this very day, she has the DNA of our Lord running through her veins. She has always, since that moment of his conception, carried him within her, even after she gave birth. She has always carried him within her. The Christ was always with his mother, and still is, in that physical, scientific sense. And it's some, it can teach us something indeed very beautiful. And it is this. It's one of the things that it can teach us. Is that as we remain close, and we have a relationship with the mother of the incarnate word, we have a devotion to her, and have that love of her and seek to grow in that communion with her, it is the logical end that we are going to have a deeper union with her son. 
In other words, when we are conceived spiritually in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, that we are always going to have a connection to her. And if we always have a connection to her, it is true that we will always have a connection to her divine son. We will always have a connection to her divine son. Which is why, as St. Louis de Montfort and, and so many other saints have said in their theology of Mary that the quickest, surest, easiest way to a union with God to get to heaven, to get to know Jesus Christ, is through the Blessed Virgin. It is through her. She is going to show us the way. She is going to teach us what it is truly like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to truly be a son or daughter of God, our Heavenly Father. It is the Blessed Virgin that is going to teach us that and to show us the surest way into union with her divine Son. And when we speak about Mary as the mother of the incarnate Word, it is impossible for us to not speak about Mary as the mother of the Eucharist, which is a topic that I would like to conclude my talk on this evening. To talk about Mary as the mother of the Eucharist. For if she, if she is the mother of the incarnate Word of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who became like us in all things except for sin, who took on flesh, that it is only logical that we can call her completely and truthfully the mother of the Eucharist. Because what is the Eucharist? It's not a thing. It's a person. It is the incarnate word. Body, blood, soul, and divinity truly present under the appearances of bread and wine. So we can truly call her the mother of the Eucharist. And just as she is a mother, as the mother of the incarnate word teaches us and shows us how to grow in deeper communion with her son, the incarnate word, so too she is going to teach us and to show us how to have a deeper union and love for her son who is truly present in the blessed sacrament, truly present in the Holy Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, the greatest gift that Christ has ever given to us. Because if there was a, a more precious gift, says St. John Vianney, that he could have given to us, he would have done it. But this is the most precious gift that we have of our blessed Lord in the Holy Eucharist. Truly present. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. So it is moving from the title of the Mother of the Incarnate Word that we logically move into the title as Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. For it can indeed teach us a great deal of the importance of having a love and a devotion and a reverence for Jesus truly present in the Holy Eucharist. And that whenever we receive Jesus in Holy Communion in a state of grace, receiving him worthily, bringing him into physically our very bodies, we are doing just what Mary did 2,000 years ago when she gave her fiat. When she said yes, that she would become the mother of the second person of the Holy Trinity. 
she was the first one to ever receive Holy Communion because she received the incarnate word into her very body who took flesh from her. And she became the first tabernacle that the world ever knew as she took the incarnate word into her womb so that he could become incarnate and thus take on our flesh. And so we too, whenever we receive Holy Communion, we take the incarnate word into us. We consume the incarnate word, body, blood, soul, and divinity. We become a tabernacle. We come into that communion with the good God. And by extension, all of heaven, because all of heaven is connected to God. And so it's important for us to talk about Mary as not only as mother of the incarnate word and the many, many other beautiful titles that she has, but certainly one of the greatest titles that she has is Mary, mother of the Eucharist. For it is through those two persons that we can develop the strongest and deepest relationship with Almighty God, Jesus Christ and his mother. Most profoundly, Jesus Christ truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. So what can Mary teach us about a devotion to the Holy Eucharist? And in particular, whenever we receive Jesus in Holy Communion or whenever we spend time in front of the Blessed Sacrament, either in exposition or in front of a tabernacle, what can Mary teach us by her own example and her own life and to grow into deeper union with Jesus, specifically present in the Blessed Sacrament? And this is something that I specifically wanted to talk about this evening. Because I'm, I'm, as I'm sure that many of you, you pay attention to Catholic news and the things that are going on in the church, that there was recently a Pew survey that was done, the results of which came out within the last week, that showed that seven in ten Catholics, seven in ten people who say that they are Catholic, do not believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. They don't believe that Jesus is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in the Eucharist. Seven in ten Catholics believe it's just a symbol. Remember once upon a time, several years ago, my dad asked me, do you, do you know how many, what percentage of Catholics, you know, uh, believe in the Eucharist? And I said, I'm, I don't maybe like, I've heard like 40% maybe, you know, in some studies that have been done. My dad looked at me and he smiled and he said, 100%. If you're Catholic, you believe in this. If you're Catholic, you believe in this. That Jesus is present in the Eucharist. Truly. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. I don't care if you can articulate the doctrine of transubstantiation to me. We believe it's true. Not because Thomas Aquinas has in a very beautiful way, expounded upon the doctrine of transubstantiation and has, has explained it beautifully from the position of philosophy to us as to how this can even be possible. It certainly strengthens our belief and, and in many ways affirms it. But we believe that Jesus is truly present in the Holy Eucharist, not because of that, not because of miracles. But the miracles are reminders to us. 
We believe that he is present because he said he is. He said it. He said, this is my body. This is my blood, which will be given up for you. He wasn't mincing words. In John 6, whenever he is talking to the Jews about the doctrine that he is the bread of life, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. He wasn't mincing words. In fact, at one point in that passage, Jesus literally changes the verb to eat. Instead of saying to just eat like ordinary food, he says rather, unless you gnaw on the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life within you. Gnaw. Truly take in. So we believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation, not because Thomas Aquinas told us about it, which thanks be to God he did, but we believe it first and foremost because Jesus said so. He said it. That's why we believe in it. And that's why Thomas Aquinas expounded upon the doctrine as if to say, well, we believe this because Jesus said it, but how can we understand it? So as that survey showed, seven in 10 Catholics don't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. If that's true, how can one hardly call themselves Catholic? Because as the Second Vatican Council told us, taught us, the Eucharist is what? The source and the summit of the Catholic faith. It's everything. If you call yourself Catholic, you say that you believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. And if you don't, well then maybe we need to have a talk about what that means. To truly believe that Jesus is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. The seven in ten Catholics do not believe in that doctrine of transubstantiation. The great author Flannery O'Connor once said, well, if the Eucharist is a sign, then to heck with it. She didn't say heck. She said, if it's just a symbol, well, to heck with that. Why bother? Why bother? I didn't lay my, down my life as, as a priest so that I could stand at a table and reenact the Last Supper. That's not why I became a priest. I became a priest first and foremost so that I could celebrate the holy sacrifice of the Mass, to represent Calvary in an unbloody manner, to bring Jesus to the altar so that the flock might be fed, so that we might be nourished spiritually, so that we might be brought to the foot of Calvary. That's why I and hopefully all of my brother priests became priests. Not to stand at a table and reenact the Last Supper. If you want to do that, go to a play somewhere. For Pete's sake. We got lots of shows down in Branson, okay? You can come on down. You can go see a show. I don't care, right? I told my congregation once upon a time, I said, if you're here for entertainment in Branson, then you can go to one of the shows down the street. You don't come to Mass to be entertained. You come to give worship to God and to receive Him body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And to grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ through that. So what are the ways in which the Blessed Virgin can help us to grow in that devotion? And I want to go through the passage that I just referenced earlier 
of Luke chapter 1, of the Annunciation. Because this passage, within this passage, Mary shows us how to have a love and devotion for Jesus in the Eucharist. She shows us how to prepare ourselves to receive him in Holy Communion. And she displays to us what the fruits of Holy Communion should be. So I would like to, as, we, as I conclude here, read through this passage and expound a little bit upon how Mary teaches us to have this greater love for the Incarnate Word who is her Son. And so Luke tells us that Gabriel appears to this virgin of Nazareth. A virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel coming in unto her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Who, having heard, was troubled at his saying, and thought with herself what manner of salutation this should be. The first thing that Mary tells us as to what our relationship is with Jesus in the Eucharist is that of humility. That of humility. What sort of greeting is this? Why would God leave himself in his flesh and blood in such a vulnerable speech, in such a vulnerable species under the appearances of bread and wine? Why would God do that? Not only to feed us, to nourish us. Because God could have left himself in any manner he wanted. But he did not want to leave, a, leave himself in a grandiose manner. Because he wanted to teach us humility. A virtue of which he was most perfect in. And the virtue of humility. And recognizing our littleness. Because you can only imagine what Mary thought when Gabriel spoke these words to her, Hail, full of grace, blessed are you amongst women. You can only imagine what she thought. And I think one of the thoughts that she must have thought was, what is he talking about? <laughs> blessed are you among women. What's this guy talking about? What is this angelic being saying to me? She didn't stand up and say, oh, well, it's about time, Gabriel. About I was waiting for you to appear to me. After all, I am the queen of angels. Ergo, I am your queen. It's about time. No. In her littleness, in her humility, she recognized who she was in her relationship to her God. That she was not worthy, even though she was, because she was the Immaculate Conception, to have a messenger of God appear to her. And so she pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Humility, she teaches us. Humility in reference to the Holy Eucharist. We recognize and we say this at every Mass before we receive Holy Communion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. I am not worthy that you, the Incarnate Word, should come to me. We recognize Indeed, how insignificant we are in comparison to God. And yet the great love that he has shown to us 
and giving himself body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist to us so that we might be fed, that we might be enthroned, that he might be enthroned within our hearts. So we recognize in our relationship to the Eucharist the necessity of humility. We indeed are not worthy, and yet God still desires to come to us. St. Jose Maria Escriva once said, that whenever you go to make a visit to the tabernacle, to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, call to mind that he has been waiting 2,000 years for that moment. How humbling indeed. So we go on, so St. Luke goes on. The angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for you have found grace with God. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give, shall give unto him the throne of David his father, and he shall reign in the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be done? Because I know not man. Out of all the responses she could have given, that's what she says. As if to say, okay, how's that going to happen? Because I know not man. Now, it's important to understand the backstory to this, to understand the context of this. Because otherwise, Mary's words don't make sense. Because Luke just told us she was betrothed. She was going to be married. What happens within the context of, marri of marriage? You bear children. So it's not that she was ignorant. <laughs> okay. It's not that she was ignorant of what happens in the course of marriage and how children come about. But scholars say that she says this because she had made a vow of virginity even in the context of marriage. She was going to be perpetually a virgin even though she was going to enter into marriage. And it's presumed, too, and some believe, that Joseph, too, made a vow of virginity as well when he entered into that betrothal with the Blessed Virgin. So it only makes sense we understand it from that context as to why Mary would ask that question. But she asks it in a sense, and this is what she teaches us next about our relationship with the Holy Eucharist, that of wonderment. That of wonderment, of awe, of marveling at this great gift. She essentially believes what the angel tells her, but she contemplates. And she says, okay, How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? So too with us in our relationship with the Eucharist. Yes, we profess, we believe that Jesus is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, but wow! Why would he do that? How is he contained within it? It is something that when we think about it, when we really contemplate it, when we, when we think about and, and really dissect the mystery of Jesus' true presence in the Holy Eucharist, we can only help but be brought to our knees in the midst of it. We can only help to be brought to, to, to adoration in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament because it is truly God. He's truly present, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God incarnate, truly present in the Holy Eucharist, and that should draw us to our knees. If we really think about it, if we really contemplate, if we really understood to its fullness 
the value of the Mass, the value of the Eucharist, and truly whom is contained in the Holy Eucharist, we would be crawling on our knees to Holy Communion. We would be crawling on our hands and knees to Holy Communion if we truly understood to the fullness of the extent of this great gift that we have. We would fall down in adoration. And some people, some people say, well, you know, Jesus, he, walks, he walked among us, and he was so, you know, he was familiar with his apostles, and so on and so forth, and so, you know, we, we, we can treat the Eucharist the same way, with that same familiarity. What's the old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. Over-familiarity breeds contempt. Christ desires us to bow before him and give him worship and adoration because he is truly God. Remember some of the passages of the New Testament in which Jesus is working in his public ministry and the occasions in which he performs miracles. What are people's responses to his miracles? Those who believed in him and who marveled at it, what did they do? They were blown away and they recognized what? He is God. He's not one of us. He is God. Whenever Peter is, is, is on the boat with the other apostles with our blessed Lord and the storm is happening, and Jesus calms the storm, what does Peter do? He falls to his knees. He falls to his knees. And he begs the Lord to leave him, for he is a sinful man. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in John's Gospel, whenever they are looking for Jesus, and he asks them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am. What does everyone in the Garden do? They fall to their knees in adoration of the divinity, whether they wanted to or not. Wonderment, awe. And the last thing that the Blessed Mother teaches us about the fruits of our adoration, the fruits of, our, of what our communion with Jesus in the Eucharist should be, is this. Mary said, in response to Gabriel, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me. Receptivity an open heart. And then what does Mary do? She goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth to bring her the good news of the gospel. That God has come amongst us as a man. So Mary teaches us, one, we must be receptive. We must be prepared. We must be properly disposed to bring Jesus into us when we receive him in Holy Communion or wherever we go to an adoration chapel. We must be properly disposed. We must give that reverence, that love, that awe, that devotion to him so that we might be fed and nourished and thus go forth and spread the good news. Mary indeed is the mother of the incarnate word. And very properly speaking, she is indeed Mary, mother of the Eucharist. And so as we gather at this Marian conference and as we prepare to celebrate the holy sacrifice of the Mass, 
Let us ask her to help us to prepare our hearts well to receive her Son in Holy Communion in every time we receive him in Holy Communion so that we can grow in that deeper communion with him and recognize that we're not just receiving a symbol or an object, but we're receiving the incarnate word into us, doing just what Mary did 2,000 years ago. So we ask her to help us to deepen our love, our devotion for her divine Son, who is truly present in the Holy Eucharist. And we ask her to help us to grow in a greater love of her, she who only desires to lead us into a deeper relationship with her divine Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. God bless.